My name is Matthew Taylor. I'm the Chief Executive of the RSA here in London. While we have faced challenges before, this one is different. Stay at home, protect lives, and then you will be doing your part. What I want to know is just how could and just how should the world change after this pandemic? So that's the question I'm putting to leading experts. It feels like it's life and death for people's businesses, their jobs, their hopes for the future. Renowned thinkers. All you want is a hug, to be honest with you. If you're living alone in this era, there are no hugs. And global leaders. China and the United States are going to emerge from this crisis significantly diminished. Welcome to Bridges to the Future. Responses to COVID-19. Well, it's my great honour to be joined by Harjun Chang, who's spoken at the RSA before and has been saying some interesting things already about this crisis and what we need to do about it. So I know who you are, Harjun, but why don't you introduce yourself to the world? Matthew, thank you for inviting me. Yes, I'm Harjun Chang. I'm an economist who teaches at the University of Cambridge, and I've been locked up like everyone else. I cannot complain because I'm quite comfortable situation. My grown-up children are with us, so I'm enjoying their company. And I live on the outskirts of uh, Cambridge, so I can walk to nature spots quite easily. So I wouldn't complain about my situation. The biggest uh, thing for me has been about the students. They are from all over the world. Some of them are here because their own countries have closed down their borders. Others have tried to go back. I mean, I have a Chinese student who is finally at home, but had flights cancelled four times in three weeks. And naturally, all students are very anxious. We are still trying to figure out how to do teaching through the internet. And yeah, I mean, it's a very difficult time for universities because the whole point of university education is that you are there together with your teachers, together with your colleagues and talking, discussing, debating all the time. I mean, that part is now extremely limited. So it's been quite a challenge to be a university teacher at this moment. My sense is that higher education as a whole around the world, its response has been a bit patchy. It doesn't really seem to have had the kind of contingencies and the capacities to respond as effectively as you might have thought, given that these are institutions full of very clever people. (laughs) Yeah, and I think the crisis has been so unexpected. You know, if anyone says, oh, I knew something like this was coming, probably that person's exaggerating his cleverness. Yeah, so it was totally unexpected, and I can understand why the university management has been, let's say, confused and have been giving confusing messages and so on. But yes, even considering the circumstances, I think it's been quite ineffective, the whole university sector. You know, the whole sector is geared towards having people together with each other. Okay, I mean, some courses have distance learning, there's open universities, and so on, but it has always been predicated on the assumption that people are together. And when that 
doesn't happen, there's a lot of difficulty. And yeah, now that the students are spread all over the world, you know, many of them do not have regular access to electricity. They might be living in crowded homes and cannot study. So yeah, actually, unfortunately, this situation is increasing the inequalities between students from different backgrounds. Because once you are in the university, you have some degree of uh, level playing field, but you know, you are stuck in crowded house in, I don't know, Ecuador, another person is in a very comfortable situation in a rich country, then that is going to make a big difference. I think that's been one of the lessons that we've been having to learn is the kind of challenges of inequity that spring up in a circumstance like this. Because what you describe for your university is, of course, true for every local school. There are some children in houses with parents who are knowledge workers and plenty of tech and strong broadband, etc. And there are others in overcrowded houses where there's one laptop between three children and parents who are having to go out to work. And that takes me to the core question that we ask everybody on this podcast. So, Hajun Chang, can you tell me how do you think the world could and how do you think the world should change after this pandemic? Yeah, I think what makes this crisis unique is that it has affected all areas of life at the same time. You know, first thing that I find most difficult is that the strategy to control the spread of disease basically restricts what makes us human, you know, being together, you know, being in a crowd, sharing experiences, whether it's a football match or the concerts or theaters, you know, or even just enjoying other people being around. I mean, without necessarily interacting with them in a bar, in a park. So I think that it's affecting us from that kind of deepest level. But yeah, I mean, as an economist, the biggest challenge that we have is not just the banking sector that's gone belly up. I mean, it's not just that rise in oil prices. It's the whole economy. I mean, many sectors cannot even produce, I mean, especially face-to-face services that are going to be impossible until we find a fully effective vaccine to go back to the old model. Many manufacturing will have to be restructured because it's labor-intensive, people work in close proximity. You know, in the U.S., meatpacking factories have been one of the main sources of the spread. So many of the production activities have to be changed. You know, we have created whole global value chains on the premise that location doesn't really matter. Okay, maybe you are worried about carbon emission, but other than that, you know, it doesn't matter whether something is supplied from Sunderland or China. And all of these need to be looked at again. And then I think the more important rethinking that we need to do is what it means to be a society. I mean, if you are basically letting some people die from preventable disease in large numbers, can you really say that we are living in the same society, whether it's because of their age and so on, but mainly because of inequalities they have, you know, the kind of increase in inequalities of the future due to different conditions that uh, children face at home during the lockdown, the inequalities that is created by the fact that some people have to actually go out to make a living, risking their health and life and the health and life of the ones around them. So I think this crisis is something that forces us to re-examine the whole organization of our economy and society. I don't think there's any obvious outcome. I mean, partly because we don't know how long this disease is going to last. You know, I mean, the optimists say that 
an effective vaccine will be developed uh, in the next year and a half. A lot of people think that it's uh, going to be longer. Some people say that it may never be developed. And then what are we going to do? And the kind of hibernation measures that countries have been deploying to get the economy going. I mean, yeah, I'm sure they can do it for six months, one year, but you know, without some fundamental reorganization of the way in which the economy and society work, these measures may not be sustainable in the longer run. So I think a lot depends on how the health crisis itself unfolds. But I think it more importantly depends on how people experience this, how people use this as an opportunity to rethink their personal priorities, rethink what are important in life, rethink the way the society is organized. You know, I mean, uh, we are, for one example, witnessing this very interesting new concept of key workers or what the Americans call essential employees, you know, healthcare workers, people working in nursing homes, people working in food stores, delivering things, you know, these are people who have been, except for medical doctors, usually treated as unskilled or semi-skilled people who are not very valuable because they get low wages. And then suddenly we realize that without these people, we cannot even safely exist. A lot of people are realizing that the kind of household work that well, mostly women do, that we have taken for granted is vital in sustaining what some economists call the care economy, the importance of it. So I think that now we are individually and socially all reprocessing our priorities and yeah, how this reprocessing of priorities might all kind of gel together to create a new society is largely upon us. I mean, the crisis has created a condition to introduce big radical changes, but whether it will necessarily happen or not really depends on our political leadership, how people organize themselves, how we conduct this conversation about new priorities and new structures. Do you think there is a possibility that we might emerge from this being able to return to an understanding of what really makes economy productive and that we might in some way scale down the financialization of our economy, for example? Yeah, no, I think that's what we should have already done after the 2008 financial crisis. But yes, I think this is going to reshape the productive structure of the economy. You know, for one thing, you know, the people that say, oh, this is the end of globalization. So I don't think so. You know, globalization will have to be reshaped. But, you know, for example, until the fully effective vaccine is developed, service activities are going to be very restricted. You know, even if they can, people would not necessarily go out and spend money on theater or restaurants or the bars. So people will have extra income. What are they going to spend that on? They're going to buy things. Yeah? So paradoxically, I think that goods trade might actually increase. I mean, in the medium term, not immediately, there'll be a shift in demand towards material goods you know, because that is safer to consume those than consuming face-to-face services. Yeah? And these can be relatively safely traded because they are going to come in a bulk container ship during the transportation. A lot of virus will die and you can quarantined a lot more easily than people moving in and out. If you're not going on foreign holidays anymore, you might want to buy another TV to watch some foreign countries. So I think there'll be restructuring of demand which will make actually making things more important than before. And another 
reason why we need to pay attention to productive economies is that we need to build a lot more resilience into the economic system, which will be also critical in dealing with the consequences of climate change. You know, so far you have put so much emphasis on efficiency that you had kind of designed an elaborate global value chain where things are produced in the most cost-effective location and then move around with so-called just-in-time management, delivering things on time and making things run like a perfect machine. But now we know that there are going to be a lot more disruptions that could be big pauses in activities. And then what you need to do is to create a more resilient, productive system, which will require a lot of material technologies. So that's once again going to make manufacturing more important. And thirdly, I think this crisis will reduce financial activities medium to long term because now the risk and uncertainty in the economies are so much more heightened. And I mean, it's not just because of the coronavirus. We are seeing increasing disruption to our life due to the consequences of climate change so that we will face a world that has a much more heightened risk and uncertainty. And those things are really bad for financial activities. I mean, I'm sure some people will somehow exploit it and become richer, but mostly financial sector doesn't do climate of heightened risk and uncertainty, and it will have to be scaled back. So I think everything points to the direction of reversal of this financialization, increasing importance of manufacturing and other material production. Is the important issue here, Harjun, that there are two ways in which we can think about resilience. We can think about it at a global scale, or we can think about it at a national scale. And depending on which way you look at it, it leads to very, very different kinds of conclusions about what you need to do. And at the moment, and particularly judging by the way that nations themselves have responded to this crisis, if you were betting on it, you would say that the emphasis in future will be on how can we as a nation become more resilient ourselves, rather than how can we contribute to a global strategy of resilience? Am I being too pessimistic, do you think? Uh, No, no, I mean, there are forces pulling in different directions, you know, when things become riskier, scarier, yes, I mean, we all have this instinctive tendency to look inward, you know, kind of close the ranks and so on. But this pandemic, the forthcoming climate crisis, these are all things that are global problems. Okay, so let's assume that you become a safe haven. I mean, at the moment, actually, my native country, South Korea, is something like that. But I mean, if the rest of the world is ravaged by a pandemic, I mean, you are not going to have anyone to sell your things to. You cannot import things to feed your people, clothe your people. If the climate crisis is going on, you cannot protect just your country. These are problems that cannot be solved by just becoming a kind of a resilient sole survivor. And I think one thing that this pandemic is doing is to make people realize that we are bound in a common destiny. You know, for example, let's talk about the vaccine. You know, if it was any other medicine, rich countries especially rich people in rich countries, will try to monopolize the medicine. And there are a lot of medicines like that, but this vaccine wouldn't work unless 80-90% of the whole world is vaccinated. There's no way you can just vaccinate the top 1%, top 10%, and somehow only those people are protected. So I think this pandemic has made 
people realize that there are actually a lot of things where you cannot protect yourself whatever amount of money you have or how much power you have because you are bound in a common destiny. Politics is a very big part of this, isn't it, Harjun? In the sense that, again, if you look historically at when crisis has led to intentional change, it's been because there have been the alliances there to do that. So after the First World War, very different views about how to go forward. But after the Second World War, a broad consensus across the kind of centre-left, centre-right about the need to learn from the lessons of the 1930s, the need for economies which benefited everybody. Again, coming out of the AIDS crisis, there was a kind of coalition between those who had suffered from the crisis and governments in terms of what needed to happen. When I think about 2007-8, there was a, a real split, it seems to me, on the kind of progressive wing. There were social democrats and liberal governments, often in power, confused about what was happening, trying to cope with it, often kind of exhausted by power in some ways. And then you had the idealism, but not necessarily the practical ideas that came from Occupy or 1%. How important is it, do you think, that we try to develop some kind of broad alliance around the kinds of economic and social strategies that we need coming out of this crisis? If we're going to defeat those siren voices calling for a kind of primarily nationalist response? Yeah, and no, I think this crisis has taught us the importance of having a comprehensive safety net, a comprehensive welfare state. The interesting thing is that countries that have been distributing cash to citizens are countries actually with weak welfare state like the US or Korea, you know, because they don't have the mechanism to get to everyone. Countries that have the higher rate of self-employment like Korea or Italy economically suffered more because you know you had all these people who are not covered by the welfare state however good or bad it is so the, for example in korea which is a country that has managed this health crisis in the most effective way in the world is now having a huge second thought on this traditionally anti-welfare state attitude you know the country has the second smallest welfare state in the OECD after Mexico, its welfare state is only about 10% of GDP, half that of the US, you know, one third that of continental European countries, and even smaller than that of Chile. But in that country, now people are discussing comprehensive unemployment insurance covering self-employed people because the country has 25% of people who are self-employed, eking out marginal existence, these are people who you have seen that great Korean movie, The Parasite, you know, people running fried chicken shops, cake shops, and then going bankrupt every three years, every four years, finally ending up in the semi-basement apartment. Anyway, so the country is now seriously discussing the introduction of a comprehensive employment coverage. And yeah, I think that we can and should revisit this issue of you know, social protection the exact form it takes might have to differ across countries, but you know this system that guarantees health, income, employment, education, and so on for everyone, I think that's how you rebuild a society. That's how you come out of this crisis in a positive way. You know, we came out of the Second World War in a very positive way. You know, powerful countries, partly because of their past wrongdoings through colonialism, but helping weaker countries more willingly, you know, governments pursuing full employment, you know, expanding welfare state. I think we can come out in that kind of way. And well, I hope the rethinking that's going on on all aspects of 
our life at the moment. I think that will be a positive force in making that change. Harjin, can I ask you about one other thing, which is that people who aren't economists might be surprised to know that economists, or thoughtful economists at least, think quite a lot about trust and the importance of trust in making economic systems and social systems work. And I wonder whether you agree that one of the other lessons we're learning from this crisis is that countries which trust their governments and where there's a reasonable sense of national unity have done better than countries which don't have that sense of kind of common purpose and trust. And therefore, renewing the kind of legitimacy of our institutions is another thing that we need to learn from this crisis. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, once again, I want to go back to my Korean example, you know, I'm not normally such a kind of cheerleader for my own nation. I mean, it has a lot of shameful records, you know, highest suicide rate in the world, the highest gender wage gap in the OECD, one of the lowest fertility rates in the world, you name it. But, you know, in this occasion, the country has managed it very, very well. And as you said, the citizens that trust in the government was crucial, but this trust was built actually through active political citizenship. So we had the last two conservative governments until 2016, and these governments really mismanaged a couple of big national crises. One was this sinking of this ferry called Sewol, in which hundreds of children on a school trip got killed, mainly because of the mismanagement of the ship's captain of the National Disaster Management Center, the president who was missing for seven hours, you know. So that really scarred the nation. And also those governments mismanaged an earlier mini infectious disease crisis called MERS, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, which is another coronavirus. I mean, it didn't kill too many people, but it really hit the country hard. So after that, the citizens became very demanding. Basically, 10 weeks of peaceful street protests in the middle of the winter pushed the parliament to impeach the president and brought in a new government, more progressive government. And this government was very aware that they need to work hard to earn the trust of the citizens because they realized that maybe in the 1960s and 70s, kind of semi-feudal, authoritarian culture, political culture of the time, it was possible just to demand trust. But this government is now facing a very well-educated, well-organized citizenry. And it knew that it had to work very hard to earn the trust. So it managed this pandemic completely transparent way and constantly consulting the public. And yeah, I think trust is absolutely crucial, but it has to be earned. And for that, you need to rebuild institution, you need to rebuild grassroots political movements, and you need to have a whole different approach from politicians to managing society, because you cannot just hide things, you know, lie about it, and then expect people to trust you. Well, Harjun, I'm so grateful to you for giving us your time. It's been a fascinating conversation. I hesitate before asking this question because I know that you will have been busy at work teaching and writing and researching, but some of us being locked up have also taken time to develop new skills or interests. Have you developed anything beyond your kind of work in the time that you've had at home? Oh, not so much. I mean, the only thing I can think about this, uh, you know, I've started doing some of these jigsaw puzzles that I used to do in the old days. And yeah, rediscovering is joy. 
But one lesson I learned from this jigsaw puzzles is that you really need to think very hard about the way you look at things. You know, that if you look at things with too much preconception, you often misplace the piece. So you are convinced that this greenish thing is part of a tree. And then later you realize it's that part of someone's dress, which you thought was blue, you know. So you need a big picture. You need to approach things without preconception. So I think that is a one little thing at the personal level that I got through this lockdown. That makes me think that we should want all our leaders to do jigsaw puzzles if that's the lesson <laughs> that they learn. For those of you who've been listening to this and thinking, well, this guy's an economist, but he doesn't talk in jargon and it's all very clear, you must read Harjun's books. They are brilliant ways of understanding economics and understanding economies. Harjun Chang, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Mitch. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it. And we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the Fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith.